broadcasting from Melbourne, Victoria. You're listening to the Investor Exchange. Tune in each week and listen to the guys from United Global Capital discuss the topics that matter the most to your finances. Each episode will help you separate the noise from what really matters, giving you timely and actionable information you can use. We'll cover areas related to financial markets, property, politics, personal finance, and the economy. Now, here's your host, Stephanie Sumner. Well, a very good morning to all of our listeners and welcome, guys, for another podcast. Hello, Steph. G'day, Steph. Welcome back. Good morning. Uh, Going to be one of the hottest days on record since Black Friday. Uh, Saturday. Black Saturday. Black Saturday. Saturday. Um, Not good memories of that one. No, I know. And I think it's the top of 44 degrees today, they're they're predicting. It's a stinker. It's hot already. Mm. Yeah. This is on the back of it getting to 40 yesterday. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Did everyone sleep well last night or was it a difficult night? Cranky. Yeah. There's a few cranky drivers on Mm. the road this morning too. Mm -hmm. (laughs) There is. I had air conditioning. I was fine. Well played. (laughs) Yes. And Joel, uh, nursing two broken wrists. Anything you want to say about uh, a recent accident you've had? Well, <laughs> let's just say I'm not as young as I used to be. <laughs> How did you manage to do that? Uh, I tried to rediscover my youth. Um, yes, I, I've got uh, two plaster casts, uh, one on either arm. Makes it a little bit difficult to wipe your bum, but uh, <laughs> I've figured out all sorts of contortionist ways to uh, to be able to overcome that. I'm glad you have. <laughs> Still do need a hand uh, washing myself. Um, but uh, never the yeah. never, Some, never someone's mind. helping you there. I hope. <laughs> yeah. I don't think we're going to those oh, no. <laughs> But yes, no, a bit of a motorbike accident on the weekend, um, and uh, yeah, force of the landing uh, just meant that I am mortal. All right. <laughs> and five weeks you didn't realise that prior. <laughs> And that's an ad for Bugger. income protection. Yes, yes, <laughs> yes. Yeah. Does anyone know where you can get good income protection from? <laughs> I do. All right. Well, moving on to our first topic for the day, Joel, uh, continuing on from last week, you're going to give us a bit of an update again on the markets and yes. telling us really not to stress about what's to come. Well, yeah, look, just coming back to that theme once again, that, you know, the fear seems to be greater than the reality. Um, uh, so last week I mentioned that... Uh, the uh, the Dow Jones Industrial Average had on the 8th of January its largest uh, or one of its largest uh, advancing days. Um, I think I mentioned it was 1.91. Uh, it was actually 1 to 91. That's what I meant to say in that there was 91 advances for every one decliner. Now, it was one of the largest days that, uh, that they'd seen over the uh, last 70 years or so. And and on a three, six, and twelve-month basis, the uh, Dow after that date um, was up uh, 24 of the last 25 times that we'd seen a reading up around that range over 12 months. Uh, 12 months later, and uh, over three, six, and twelve months, the uh, the Dow was up 7.2 percent, 15.2 percent, and 20.2 percent on average over those uh, those preceding uh, 25 times. Well, today we've also got some further research that's come out. Now, one of the uh, one of the key things to note when you see huge amounts of fear and panic is you tend to see a lot of investors pulling money out of equity funds, equity uh, uh, managed funds. Well, global equity funds saw their largest withdrawals in the week of uh, in the last week of December since 2011. Uh, sorry, since 2008. 
Uh, and of wow. $28 billion in one week. So investors around the globe pulled $28 billion out of global equity funds in the um, in the you know in the panic that was ensuring uh, mm. just around Christmas time. Now the last time you would think that this is actually potentially a, a negative sign for stocks, but the last two times that this has actually occurred, uh, where we've seen readings around that same range of twenty eight billion dollars, uh, was in two thousand and eleven in um, August of two thousand eleven. The U.S. stock market was up twenty eight percent twelve months later. Uh, so we saw That's a general capitulation. Mm. And uh, the previous time we saw a, a withdrawal of money from global equity funds prior to that date was in October of 2008 when the whole world was crashing around us. And while it was uh, a little bit early, I think the market didn't actually bottom for around about four or five months after that. Twelve months later, the global uh, the S&P 500 was still up 25%. Um, 12 months after we saw uh, global equity funds have significant redemptions like we saw back in December just a month ago. So, you know, continuing that theme, if you're looking at market action, market cycles, capitulation and investor sentiment, it actually is a contrarian indicator. Historically, that that actually leads you to be, uh, you know, if you're a contrarian and you're looking at these numbers, you'd say that all things being equal, if history rhymes, nevertheless not repeating, we should still have some pretty good performance ahead of us over the next 12 months. We also had some unemployment stats come out of um, come out just yesterday uh, here in Australia, and in Australia's this seems to be once again a lot of people wanting to poo-poo Australia's economy. But in actual fact, we had the uh, unemployment rate in Australia fall from 5.1% down to 5%. We are gradually inching down towards Ooh. almost full employment here. Not mm. bad for an economy that's supposed to be going yeah. into recession, yeah. and uh, all market pundits, uh, you know, tipping that the property market is going to crash. Mm-hmm. Um, and uh, and just some further stats here: we we hear about this, you know, fear around uh, the stability of the housing market. Now the RBA um, has put out some stats recently, and and in general, what you would see is that, um, well, housing stress. So. One of, the, one of the key things that leads to a housing crash, and we've said this a number of times, is you're usually seeing unemployment, which is uh, often the result of high interest rates that are leading to retrenchments in the in job sector, uh, and that leads to forced selling. Mm. Um, now, at this point in time, we, uh, we would expect that housing stress, or generally housing stress is considered to be where mortgage repayments or rent repayments represents greater than 30% of household disposable income. Well, right now, um, mortgage repayments here in Australia sits at around about 25 and a half to 26%. So we're not in a housing stress situation mm-hmm. at this point in time. And, and what's more, the RBA has said that of the um, of two-thirds of household outstanding debt here in Australia, 40% of that, sorry, uh, two-thirds of household debt is owned or being serviced by the top 40% of income earners in Australia. So keeping up with the Joneses. Mm. <laughs> so, well, what it's saying is that, yeah, we've got two thirds of all loans that are outstanding are actually being serviced by the strongest borrowers. Mm. Um, with the most ability to with repay. With the most ability to repay. Can and I just ask you a question though? You know how you just said, you know, it's a strong a strong uh, economic climate with people employed, but how come wages aren't actually increasing? If everyone's doing quite well, why are we sort of seeing wages actually slow? 
Well, wages are actually increasing, but it's increasing at a fairly benign sort of pace. Where historically we've seen wages increase at around about 4% per annum over the long term, mm. we're seeing them rise by a little bit over 2% at this mm. point in time. And that's because we have had some slack. I mean, um, over the last, uh, we, we peaked at an unemployment rate of around about 6.25, uh, 6.5%, 6.5%, about five or six years ago as the... As the um, about four years ago, actually, as the uh, resources boom was, you know, really turning into a bit of a bust scenario. But since then, it's been edging down. And because mm. we've had that slack, workers have been more plentiful than perhaps what they would have been in years gone by. But as the labour market is starting to tighten up, um, we will start to inevitably see wages growth start to tick up again um, over time. Um, and we're, we're now down at 5%, uh, down towards 4% is considered to be full employment. Yep. And it's around that sort of range where you're getting down towards that 4% range that you start to see workers being in a stronger position to negotiate wages because employers can't actually find the workers that they're actually looking for. So then they have to actually entice them with higher wages to come across. So yeah, there's been a little bit of slack, but all in all, I mean, 5% unemployment is certainly not uh, devastating. And um, we've uh, added uh, another 7,500 jobs last month. Um, uh, and over the past 12 months, we have seen full-time uh, employment has increased by 162,000, which has outpaced part-time workers, by, uh, which uh, increased by 106,000. Are there particular sectors that are actually increasing their jobs? Well, th- those are the aggregate numbers for the Australian economy. Yeah. Um, um, the last month, last month, part-time employment was a la- was the major contributor for employment growth last month so and that might have some seasonal you know um, yeah reasons the summer that. months where people yep. are only yeah yep might have some seasonal you know uh, reasons behind that but all in all once again it's doing well. we've seen imp- the number of people enter the workforce has increased yet the unemployment rate has decreased which means that we're we're generating enough jobs to absorb those people who are looking to enter the workforce and then some mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. So, you know, for all the doomsayers out there um, that is saying that this is going to be a, a significant housing crash, uh, once again, you know, we're, we're saying, yeah, it's a nice re-correction uh, underneath it all. You know, um, we've, we've seen the, the banks have now had some of the brakes lifted off them come 1st of January. Mm-hmm. All in all, we're actually in a pretty good environment. And, uh, you know, I, I don't think that people should be as, as fearful and as scared as perhaps what the, the headlines are suggesting. Well, Very good. Yeah. Well, it makes more interesting news when there's a bit of a fearful headline. So. Sure does. <laughs> it's not going to sell papers, Joel. <laughs> That's <No>. right. <laughs> Australian economy is safe. Wouldn't yes. Calm down, everyone. <laughs> <laughs> Wouldn't put him doing the headlines in media, would you? <laughs> no. That's exactly right. <laughs> All right. And I've actually just seen another job for you, Joel. In watching you present that with your your arms in cars, <laughs> does anyone remember the Thunderbirds? Yes. <laughs> that's how Joel looks. The way he's got his arms up and about. So just picture the old Thunderbirds, and that's how Joel's looking with his arms waving around. Uh, Joel, you did when you were walking down the street, though. You did say uh, to me the other day that um, if anyone was staring at you, you're going to say, "Thunderbirds well, are a go." Let's see how the other guy fared. Fun and games, though, till uh, he has to have a shower. (laughs) (laughs) All right, so moving along now, Louis, uh, you had an interesting uh, client conversation uh, with uh, somebody that um, mentioned something about money. I sure did, yes. So we were talking about um, 
uh, a few options and, and how their finances were generally. And, and she commented to me, look, I'm afraid when I don't have money. But then when I do have money, I'm afraid of what to do with it. <laughs> so, That's a dilemma. So understand that. So it, it is quite a psychological conundrum. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And you can only think of what kind of money pattern that could lead to uh, in a person who, if, if they don't want to have money, but they don't want to be without money, there's this Ooh, constant conflict. Uh, when they do have money, what do they do with it? Maybe they've lost money already. Mm. When they haven't had money, maybe they've suffered because of it. So I really put some thinking into uh, what she had said. And it came down to me in my mind that she's talking about two different fears. So being fearful when she doesn't have money, but then also being fearful when she does have money. Mm. And these are different kinds of fears. The first fear is a fear of the current situation. And I think that might actually be a bit of a healthy fear because fear is one of the best motivators that you will ever find. Most if, definitely. If you're mm-hmm. not happy with your current situation, mm-hmm. well, then you're going to take some uh, some steps to change it. Uh, my fear of spiders, make sure I kill every spider in sight <laughs> and I stay happy and I am highly motivated to kill spiders whenever I see you're, them. You're better than me, Louis. My sight. fear of spiders makes me run away from them. <laughs> <laughs> I'll know where to go if I need help in future. Yeah. Point being, you're highly motivated to take action yeah. so that you are safe. Well, that's the flight or fight. Right. <laughs> that's right, that's right. So, being afraid if you don't have money, well, that's a motivator to take steps so that you do have money coming in. So that kind of fear is, I think, can actually be a a healthy one so that you take those steps. Now, the other fear, I'm afraid of what to do with money when I have it, is a different kind of fear and is what I don't think is a healthy fear. It's a paralyzing fear. Mm. Mm -hmm. And when you have that kind of fear, you just get stuck and you don't know which action to take, Mm. and the fear is actually preventing you from taking an action. Yeah. And there's potentially all kinds of things that are wrapped up in this. You know, is it fear of making a mistake? Is it a fear uh, that you um, might be defrauded? Is it a fear of the risk of the actual investment that's being proposed? Mm. Uh, Is it a fear that if you take option A, option B might work out better? There's all kinds of things. There's also a fear of, well, well, if I do this, then what will other people say? There's all kinds of things. Mm. Um, So if you have a fear that is paralyzing you, well, then the best thing that I could direct a person towards is a book that was written on the topic called Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway. Yeah, good. Yep. Like Great it. book by Susan Jeffers. Yep. Uh, I listened to it on audiobooks on, uh, on my program Audible. If anyone doesn't have an Audible subscription already, send me your email address and I will send you through Audible a free copy of the book to have a listen to. Man, nice. that... that, uh, that that could be such a great um, uh, guide for investors as well. Yeah. You know, I mean, feel the fear and do it anyway. If you've done your work, it's going to feel uncomfortable to go and buy something that's down. But if you've done the work and you know the business and you know how financially safe it is, feel the fear. And if you're feeling it, 
go ahead and do it because it's probably the right yeah. thing to be doing if it feels uncomfortable. Well, and most people I've ever heard from or, or listened to in, in other audio books that have performed at a high level in whatever their field is, they don't have an absence of fear. They embrace and saying, I understand it, but I'm going to take this action. Mm. Yes. Mm. Courage. Mm. Yeah, that's right. The, the, the definition of courage is is um, not the, doing something in the absence of fear. It's mm. Doing in the face, in of, the it. face of fear. Yeah. That's yeah. right. Just yeah. to, uh, following on from that client, though, I, I completely can understand that fear because, yes, okay, you're without money and that's it's really stressful. But when you've got it, I would say that 90% of the fear would be, I'm going to lose it. Mm. So, yep. And I think for the average investor, it's trying to find the right solution for the money and not fearing that you're going to lose it. That's what it is. It's not even about what other people say. It's about making a decision that you could potentially lose all that money that you've made. And mm-hmm. it's horrifying. So. Yeah, yeah, it is. It is. Uh, so let me give you a couple of key points from the book mm. uh, as a bit of a summary. So what the book prescribes is a few ways that you can handle the fear and move through that to what you are actually going to do about it and what is the actions that you're going to take. So the first thing is something that you can immediately say to yourself. So when you look at what is it that I'm actually afraid of? It's then to say, well, you know what? I'll handle it. So mm-hmm. if you're afraid of having money but then losing it, you know what? If I lose money, I'll handle it. Yeah. yeah. If I choose the wrong investment, you know what? I'll handle I'll it. I'll handle it. Yeah. If it goes really well and then I've got more money to do something with and that makes me more afraid, you know what? I'll handle it. Mm. So that's the first philosophy or mindset to adopt. Uh, And then just knowing a few truths about the fears. And Susan Jeffers puts out five fears, uh, sorry, five truths about fear. Firstly, fear will never go away. Mm -hmm. You'll always be afraid of something. (laughs) Something. Those damn spiders. (laughs) That's right. So feel it, do it anyway, and you'll get through that one. Uh, But just know there'll be another one after it. So uh, why let this fear stop you? If you get through it, then you can get on with the next one and look forward to it. Uh, Number two, the only way to get rid of the fear that you have is to do something about it. If you're fearing an action, do it. So you're saying Joel should get back on that motorbike? Well, I'm not yeah. sure there's a fear there, though. Yeah. No, there's no fear yep. there. Yeah. That's actually the problem. Yeah. <laughs> and I remember hearing from a, a comment by a surfer in the news the day after he had been uh, suffered a shark attack. Did he, was he the one that punched it? Leg. No, oh, he's not the one that punched one. it. But he said, I had to get back on my board and go surfing the very next day. Ooh, that quick. Because wow. if I didn't do it then, mm. I might have never done it again. Mm. Yeah. So he yep. knew that he had to do something about it immediately. Well, that's the old saying, isn't it? Back on the horse. Yep. It's like you've been falling off. Get back on. And you know, Louis, I, um, I used to have a, a fear of public speaking. Right. And uh, I had a really uh, a terrible um, experience at university. And, uh, and, and I just said, look, I can't be fearful of that going forward. Otherwise, it's going to prevent me from being mm. successful. So I just got up and did it and overcome say, it. Now we can't shut you up. Yeah. yeah. <laughs> uh, <laughs> right. Certainly yeah. overcame that yeah. one. Yeah. And, and that truth really highlights uh, the, the third truth that Susan Jeffers talks about, which is... Uh, feeling better doesn't come before doing something about it. Yeah. Mm-hmm. You have to do it first, 
feeling better comes second. Yes. So you can't wait for the perfect time to invest. You can't wait to be more comfortable later. Mm -hmm. The only thing to do is to do the action and then you'll feel better about Mm -hmm. it. Yep. And your research. Well, yes. I I mean, mean, particularly with finances, I think it's your research into the people that are investing for you and knowing what you're investing in. Absolutely. I'm only talking about the emotional side of it right now. Of course, you have to have your facts to back it up. Uh, I advocate the use of experts so that you have all the legitimate facts. Um, So I'm only talking about that uh, emotional side of it. Truth number four is that everyone experiences fear when they're in unfamiliar situations. So of course, if you've never had the money to do something with before, you're gonna be a bit afraid Mm -hmm. of it. Uh, But once you do it, well then you've done it. And truth number five, pushing through a fear is less frightening than living with that fear Mm -hmm. and having the helplessness of experiencing that fear and not doing something about it. I remember the two definitions of fear I was told a while ago. One of them, you know, using the words the word F-E-A-R was false evidence appearing real is one way of defining <laughs> yeah, yeah, fear. Yeah, yeah. I like and then the second one was F everything and run. <laughs> <laughs> there you go. So that's my summary for you. Um, and uh, I'll be telling that person to listen to this podcast mm. um, now that I've had my thoughts on it, and and I hope that that helps. Yeah, great advice. Yeah, well done. Again, what was the name of the book and the author? Feel the Fear and Do It Anyway okay. by Susan Jeffers. Awesome. Great one. All right, well, look, we're going to take a really short break, and we'll be back after this message. Want to learn the strategies that have achieved returns more than double the return of the average superannuation fund? Each day, clients of United Global Capital are using strategies and tactics that were once thought the domain of the professional investor or the super rich. Book your seat at UGC's Financial Fast Track Seminars, where you'll learn the science behind selecting high-performance stocks and real estate, how you can participate in advanced strategies like property development, short selling, and international investments, as well as how to protect your wealth against major adverse market events. To secure your seat, simply go to ugc.net.au slash events and select the seminar that suits your needs. Seats are limited, so book your spot now. Okay, and welcome back. Uh, We're going to now move on to Brett, who's going to talk to us about the Chinese buyers and what's likely to happen in the housing market. Okay. Well, before I do that, I just want to come back a little bit to what Joel spoke about earlier with unemployment, because I saw something this week that outlined the 10 best jobs in Australia that don't need a degree. And I think the reason this article was written uh, is because the government are looking, or they have, reduced the the threshold of HEX debt repayments for 2019 from the $56,000 income level down to $42,000. That's a big drop, Mm. isn't it? Yeah. So anyone that's got that hex debt, you're going to be, as soon as your income gets over 42000 you're starting to pay it back. Just out of curiosity, do you have what the scale up of uh, income is, like uh, what the what the brackets are, or you don't have that there with you? For, for the hex? Yeah, for no, the hex. No, no, it's just a one line yeah, explaining that enough. scenario. The yep. only thing I'd say about the hex debt is that um, when you're at university, you're not really used to earning a lot of money anyway, yeah. so hopefully that will you know, help a, a percentage little bit. coming out of it as, yeah. you, as you go just, probably You're done. used to eating two-minute noodles. Yeah. So. <laughs> Yeah. <laughs> House sharing. Yeah, it is Finding a, happy hours. It is a lower threshold than it, uh, a lower bag. percentage repayment than it used to be. 
Right. Uh, so it used to kick in at 4%. Mm. Uh, now kicks in at the lower threshold. It kicks in at a lower rate of 2%. Oh, okay. 2% okay. of income. Now, this is unconfirmed, but I heard another scenario with a lot of this hex debt that there are a lot of Australians that would leave the country after getting their degree and be employed overseas and almost abandon their hex debt because Mm. the government couldn't get access to that income. Well, most of them have to come back at some point. That's part of it. And what what I heard the government were now doing is that they're saying any inheritance, your hex comes out of it before you can receive it. So when estates are wound up. Wow, okay. I don't know where that's been implemented, but I heard that that was likely to be happening. So they were were just looking at all this going, no, you're not getting away with it, guys. We're going to get you one way or another. Well, I don't know about how you guys felt, but it's. I mean, you certainly noticed it Mm. coming out of your your pay. But, um, you know, and it took a long time to pay mine down. But Mm. it... It was fairly okay to, to say, you know, I've got to pay off a small loan every now and then yep. and take well, it out. So. Yeah. Well, I, I didn't get a degree, so I'm curious, what, what are the levels of hex debt that people are accumulating? Mine was about 75000 Right. So, mm-hmm. Yeah. So was, you did two degrees, though. I did, yeah. 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 And it was a long time to pay it off. I, I would you yeah. know, openly admit that that did yeah. take a long time. So. Well, that is. If you're in your sort of mid-20s and yeah. you've got a seventy, eighty thousand $80,000 debt with yeah. no asset or that behind and it. And I would well, say that there's others out there that had well over... I had a friend that was in um, that did a medical degree and was well into the $100,000 wow. mark. So it's, mm. it's a lot of money. Yeah. And it's, it, it is a hard way to start your career, I guess, with repaying all of that. You know, instantly you've got this massive debt on your head. So. Mm. Yeah, yep, that's right. And, and it's a better system than other places of the world. Mm. Uh, the because states. firstly, yeah, certainly the states. Uh, our degrees are starting to become, you know, at, not as expensive, but in the similar ballpark. Yep. Uh, but the method of repaying through an, uh, an additional amount of tax back to the government, uh, the fact that the amount of the loan only increases by inflation, mm. not by uh, a, an absurd interest rate or anything yeah. like that. Uh, so it's a pretty good system. Yep, mm. no, it is. But you are you are definitely getting the inflation on top. So you are, yes. Yeah. And that's that's another extra. So. Mm-hmm. It is. Mm. Well, for any listeners out there that are thinking about what their career options could be if they don't have a degree or they're young and weighing up whether they want to get a degree or not here is the top 10 in australia of of jobs that uh, pay you quite well without actually needing a degree does anyone want to have a throw a dart at which which job may be on the list see any, if there's any that any come to mind danger jobs like something to do with uh you know i don't know building works or uh, something to do with nothing i'm seeing demolition. that it's that, got a red <laughs> flag yeah no. nothing i'm seeing there at this okay. stage mining Train driver mining Train no driver? i'm not seeing no no, no. okay I thought there was one, there's one in particular that I thought may have come up and I'll, I'll tell you what it is. So anyway, I'll go through them in order. Um, so the average salary, the highest one that doesn't need a degree is a construction manager. Okay. So I don't know what the level of risk is, but yeah, if you've, yep. if you've become knowledgeable in building and you're overseeing something, you're, you're going to be earning around $155,000 a year. Right. Okay. Okay. Second one I don't quite understand is, is an ethical hacker. So I'm assuming oh, that's someone that yeah. does... So they, is it someone that hacks into different systems to see if they can actually yep. break yep. in yep. and, and get It's a computer uh, testing, testing person. Yeah. Yep. Yep. So they're yep. working for the company, not yep. trying to actually yeah, yeah. break the company. Uh, another uh, obscure way to say it is a penetration tester. <laughs> oh. <laughs> sounds, a bit, sounds a bit sus, yeah. but it's literally... What industry uh, is that? <laughs> all right. It's, it's a, a business might say, here's my server and here's yeah. my yeah. computer. Uh, you try and hack into it. Yeah. Yep. Okay. Uh, so their average wage is around 132000 Number three, <coughs> and I didn't realise I didn't need a degree, is actually a pilot. Really? Yeah. Oh, okay. 
Oh, no, no because you can. You, you don't have to have a degree to go through the training. Yeah. Yeah. There you go. Costs a lot. Yep. <laughs> yeah. yeah. Now, the fourth one on the list, which I thought may have come up uh, with an average uh, earning of just under 100000 mm. is a real estate agent. Mm. Yep. Given yep. you don't need a degree. Now, yeah. I'm not convinced that that is the average wage because there's a lot of people that are transient in the real estate injury that uh, real estate industry that get their you know their entry level qualification and may come and do a few months work, but it's mm. so performance driven that they may leave. But I guess for those that are, have worked in the industry for a while, an average wage of around a hundred thousand is probably about right yep. for the yep. good performance. Yep. Uh, yep. Number five, a software engineer. Uh, number yeah. six, a HR manager, everyone's favourite. <laughs> Number seven, a maintenance manager. We're getting around okay. 89000 a year for that. Okay. Now, this one may be the danger one you're talking about, uh, Steph. Number eight, an environmental health and safety officer. Mm. Oh. <laughs> they just, they're more of a desk jockey than a real danger man, I'd say. <laughs> uh, number nine, a sales manager. And the last one on the list at coming in at $86,000 average wage is a fitness manager. So I'm assuming they manage the gym. Because yeah, oh. I'm not convinced personal trainers wouldn't be getting that. That would really... Yeah. You that much money, but no. anyway. Well, if you're managing, if you're managing like a virgin it. or you're managing, you know, fitness first or mm. something like that, yeah, yeah. you're probably going to be earning that. Yeah, yeah. interesting. Uh, so back to my topic on uh, the, the Chinese influence on the Australian market. So we've discussed previously about how the Australian property market's in a, in a slight decline at the moment. And that's on the back of some really strong growth through from probably 2012 or 13 onwards all the way through to really through 2017. It was really only 2018 that the declines were being realised. Uh, and that coincided a lot with the Chinese demand. A lot of the, the pricing growth over that period of time was, was driven by a lot of overseas buyers, mostly from China coming in. And the decline probably coincides with when those buyers started to disappear and dry up. And the reasons they started to disappear uh, was mainly because of some limitations that, uh, that the Chinese government put on capital controls, their ability to get their own money out of China, uh, but also obviously all of the Australian state governments increased the stamp duty and the taxes for yeah. foreign investors. Yeah. Uh, and then there were no local banks that would lend to non-resident lenders. Yeah. Right. So access to funding. So the demand was still there. The appetite was still there. But there was a lack of demand. They also had a bit of a, a yeah, sorry, a lack of yeah. ability to finance. And and Chinese also uh, tightened up on their movement of money as well. Correct, which we said the capital oh, controls. Yeah. And I've actually got so the capital controls actually came about in early two thousand and seventeen, where the government put a a sort of a limit on the amount of foreign exchange any Chinese resident could make. They they yeah. capped it at fifty thousand dollars a year, mm. and then they also uh, put an extra control on that, saying that. We, we're also screening where that $50,000 a year goes and it can only be used for travelling goods and services, not for investment purposes. Mm. And they did that because they wanted the money staying in the Chinese economy. Mm. So that slowed it down. Uh, but apparently the, the, the appetite and the demand from the Chinese to want to get to Australian property is still there. So it's just a matter of what's going to, to release the shackles on this because one of the, one of the uh, articles I read, has anyone heard of Juwai? No. no. GY is kind of like a, the Chinese version of realestate.com.au. Okay. okay. But the, the biggest difference is, is they're not buying on this real estate portal properties within China. They're buying global properties. Ah. So they go to this GY website and they can get access to Australian, Canadian, Was that started UK. by an Australian? Good question. I, I don't actually have that information. We were at a conference in 2015 
yeah. in New York, and one of the key speakers there was an Australian talking exactly who, about that. Yeah, yeah and yeah. He, yeah, yeah, and how he'd established the number one platform for Chinese to buy foreign real estate. Well, that may be it because yeah, yeah. it has been around for a while. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, but I, I saw some other things when I was reading this article. So GUI have released uh, just a table explaining where their buyer inquiry trends have been over the last year. And two countries had phenomenal amount of growth of inquiries, and I was shocked to see which they were. Anyone want to hazard a guess? New Zealand. No. Doesn't appear on the list. Canada. Canada's up there. Canada had a 46% increase in inquiry. UK... UK didn't have an increase. Not Ireland did. No, not with Brexit. Anyway, I'll, I, I, <laughs> doubt you'll, I'll doubt you'll get it, but they're increasing inquiries. So this doesn't mean necessarily sales, but inquiries yeah. of, of properties on the GUI website. The actual biggest increase was in Thailand. Wow. 687% increase in inquiry. Wow. I wonder, wonder what, what would be driving that kind yeah, of... Yeah, not sure. Uh, and but closely behind it was Greece, six hundred and sixty percent. I think that's because it, you know the economy is really not in a great spot, and they're thinking it will recover at some point, and why not get in now? Maybe, mm. yeah. And, and I think uh, one of the things that someone else we were dealing with just yesterday, who's been over to China a lot to, uh, to factories and things for yep. his business here in Australia, and he says that the biggest thing driving them is over in China they can never really own real estate. Yeah. Mm. So when they get access to it in other countries, they just think, "Wow, great! I, I own this. No one can take it off me. It's yep. mine." And whether that's for me or my family or for the future, mm. whereas they're stuck with really leasing it for that's the, the an, lifetime. An interesting one as well because we're in Hawaii um, over over Christmas, and um, there's a, an area called Kahala uh, that's a, an incredibly expensive area uh, along the coastline of Oahu. And a lot of the houses are not lived in. These absolute mansions that are just hmm. not being lived in. Yeah. And we asked the locals what was happening there. And they said it's Chinese investors that you know purchase these properties and pretty much don't ever visit them. They yep. just leave them with uh, yep. having a maid to come and look after them and, and tend to the property. And they just sit there for 12 months of the year. It's wow. hard to fathom, isn't it? That yeah. much money just sitting idle. Incredible. Yeah. yeah. Yep. We just need to get access to the keys. Yeah, I know. <laughs> <laughs> It'd be great, wouldn't it? Yeah. <laughs> uh, so the last part of this, so what it's going to mean for Australia is, well, obviously the three factors that we've mentioned, access to borrowings you know, within Australia for, for non-residents, uh, the capital controls out of China and the stamp duty or the taxes implied on them. As soon as something around that gives, the likening that they've, they've quoted in this is it's going to be like a damn wall breaking. Right. right. So if that happens, the demand from the Chinese to buy Australian property is still there. And, it, and they've still got the funds and the, and the desire and the appetite to do it. It's just whether they're going to be able to find a way to do it. Are concerned then that this is going to impact the market for people who, again, that like uh, local Australians that are tr- trying well, to sort of... It definitely will if, if the floodgates open again. Yeah. Well, that tells me that it's a bit of a, a tap that could be turned off and on. Yeah. So if, if Australia started going into a major uh, household uh, mm. value decline... Uh, if the government turns the tap on a little bit and releases, if the Australian government releases some of their restrictions, uh, well, then that demand is just ready to go, mm. and that extra demand can help to hold up 
the housing prices if it's crap. Does it boost the price uh, of property? But but Mm. only uh, but but they can control it. Yeah, is what I'm saying. Mm. So if property is going to fall too far, Mm. uh, like a correction like this, where the fundamentals are still relatively good and it's probably a correction from a from an overpricing, um, they're going to let that happen Mm. uh, when unemployment is still good. But if we've got rising unemployment and the economy in decline and banks are at risk because of property values, the the government is going to start to support measures to underpin a housing price, just like they did in the global financial crisis with... Uh, extra first home buyer grants yeah. and things like that. Mm. But what happens to what happens to our economy then if we're just letting overseas buyers come and invest here? Just I'm just curious. What what would that do for our country if we're we're owned by foreign, you know, foreigners? Well, really, Steph, I can I can give you a classic example of where to look. Go and have a look at the United States. In fact, it's estimated that uh, somewhere I can't remember the exact numbers, but it was something staggering, like eighty percent of New York is owned by foreign. Foreign owners, non-US. Yeah. Non- yeah. Do you think Union that's done any damage to their to their local? Market? I don't think so no? because I think, in fact, one of the key buyers of real estate in the US during the downturn were foreign buyers. I mean, right. you remember the stories of Australians flocking over there, but that wasn't just Australians going over to the everyone. US to buy real estate. Yeah. It was Chinese, it was South Americans, it was you, you name it. Anyone who had cash was going in to buy up real estate in Phoenix, Florida. Mm. Nevada, you know, mm-hmm. Southern California, Atlanta. I mean, and that was one of the things that helped their market, their property market, Stay actually recover. Yeah, interesting. So, of those three factors, obviously, Louis, you said the government could reduce the, the taxes on the foreign foreign buyers. So that's one thing the Australian government could do. We're still going to be relying upon the Chinese government allowing some releasing of capital out. Uh, the third one about the uh, the access to local finance is actually being worked on at the moment. A lot, uh, you might have noticed if you've ever walked through a CBD of Melbourne City or Brisbane, there's some foreign Chinese banks that probably weren't around yep. a few years ago. Mm. So they're actually setting up here where they can actually get access. To, so they'll lend the money here in Australia based on your financial position in your home country. Mm. Right. So there's there's now potentially access to finance. So there is a chance this could turn. So Was that one of the Chinese sponsors of the Australian Open? So I'll see in the broadcast I, there I are some haven't Chinese characters. checked that, Louis. I couldn't answer. Mm. Not sure. But well, yeah. we've got uh, the Chinese Construction Bank and yeah. the ICBC yeah, down the road yeah. as well. And obviously yeah. HSBC. Yep. It's been around for quite a while. Yep. So, you know, th- there is some signs saying that if, if two or three or, or the combination of these issues gets to a level, the demand will increase and obviously that'll impact our, our values again. Mm. Uh, and the other part of it that, uh, that makes us attractive is that the Chinese yuan is now about 6% higher against the Australian dollar compared to this time last year. So mm. they see it as more affordable mm. to buy now. Yep. And you, you think, though, that, that with them buying in, it would it be the top sort of echelons again that are actually purchasing the larger, more expensive properties? It's not just the average home, or is it everything? Both. Yeah. I think they look at all parts of the market because quite often um, sometimes a family that might have a bit of wealth are looking at buying something for one of their children to come out and live in whilst mm. they're studying. Yeah. Mm-hmm. So, yeah, you'll see all sorts. Yeah. I just yeah. wonder if that will sort of push our um, Australian buyers out further uh, into, you know, more remote areas um, if, if yeah. they've got the money to sort of purchase in. Not that it's a bad thing. I, I think it's a that's, healthy balance. Well, that's a market. Yeah. So yeah. If, if the local buyers don't have the same ability to 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 pay the price that the vendors want, well, that's mm. how it'll work, yeah. Yeah, interesting too. Yep. I think it's an interesting one to watch, though. It is interesting yeah. to watch. So, look, it may not even eventuate, or it may take two or three years to eventuate again, but I would say at some point the Chinese buyers will figure out a way to come back in and mm. start buying our property again. Yeah. Mm. 
look, just to, to cover off on something else that's kind of linked to that is uh, a report on the 10 most expensive cities to live in around the world in 2019. So this is a study done by the 15th uh, Annual Demographia International Housing Affordability Survey that looks at 309 housing markets uh, around the world and it uses what it calls the mean multiple approach where it takes the median house price and divides it by the median household income okay. to work out which are the most expensive cities. We can have a guess on this. Yeah, so I've got a list uh, of 10. Okay, three of them are in Australia. Uh, <laughs> no. I'd say. Well, I know, I know, I know which one's the Singapore? most expensive. Okay. Uh, in terms of, is it real estate prices or is it uh, cost of living? No, it's purely the mean. So the mean multiple is median house price divided yeah. by median household wow. income. Okay, so Hong Kong is number one. Yeah, yeah. It always, it has been for it long, and it's, and it's a long mile. way in front yeah, given their ratios too. Uh, and then I'd say Singapore would be number two. Funnily enough, mm. Singapore doesn't actually appear on this list. Gosh. Wow. Nope. Must mean that they're earning a lot of money because yeah. <laughs> their real estate is expensive. Yeah. Uh, Paris and New York. Okay, so no Paris and actually no New York. I'm going to say... And Van no London. Vancouver and Vienna. Uh, Vancouver, yes. Vancouver is actually second. Second, right. But no Vienna. Mm. So, uh, okay, I'll take you from 10 to 1. Yeah, <laughs> take us. San Francisco. Oh, oh of course, okay. of course. It comes in at number 10. So the way they work their affordability ratio, it has a, a ratio of 8.8. Right. Mm -hmm. Okay. Uh, number 9 is Auckland. Mm, okay. okay. Ah. Well, that, that, you know, we have New been Zealand. over there and the price of their real Across estate the Dutch. is incredible. Yep. Oh. yep. So that's at 9.0. <laughs> uh, now, I I've, haven't really heard of this place Turunga, which is the Western Bay of Plenty in New Zealand. Wow. Okay. Right, okay. That's right. at 9.1, so comparable. Uh, another American one at number seven, Los Angeles. Yeah. Oh, really? Okay. Yeah, at 9.2. So, yeah, Southern California seems to have a few because then San Jose, not far from LA, at yeah. 9.4. And Santa Cruz. Santa in Cruz, Southern California okay. at nine point at nine point six. Never have picked these destinations. No. <laughs> well, San Jose is closer to Silicon Valley than San Francisco. Yeah. Silicon yeah. Valley sits sort of in between, but closer to San Jose. Mm -hmm. Yep. Then probably the best city in the world at number four, Melbourne. Yeah. Right. Yeah. We're number four. We're number we? four. Yep. Well, of course. At, at nine point mm -hmm. seven, and then we're closely followed by our northern sister in Sydney. Yep. Okay. At eleven point seven, and the then of course and the tram. <laughs> Vancouver, which we mentioned before, <laughs> yes, uh, at 12.6. And as Joel said, Hong Kong at 20.9. So it's a long well, way. Yeah. And yeah, no to be that. So well, It's interesting that, it that is. we're ranked at number four as well. That's mm. pretty interesting stuff. Uh. Definitely. <laughs> yep. So yeah, you know, the two big Australian cities coming yeah. in at three and four. Yeah. Oh, don't worry about Sydney. Now, cost of living would be interesting to see that in relation to that as yeah. well. Mm. I mean, that's yeah. only on housing prices. Mm. So yeah, interesting stuff. All right, well, we're going to throw to one further quick break and we'll be back after this message. Are you concerned about your finances? Maybe you're not sure if you'll have enough money to retire on. Or maybe you've received a redundancy, inheritance or even a significant promotion or perhaps a life-changing medical diagnosis. Regardless of your concern or financial position, United Global Capital's advisors are experts in the areas of strategic financial planning, taxation, superannuation and self-managed superannuation funds, risk management, estate planning 
and investments. Don't let fate dictate your financial future. Take control today and contact United Global Capital for a no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Simply call 03 8657 7640 or email info at ugc.net.au and book your appointment today. Okay, welcome back to the last segment for the podcast today. It's that favourite segment, You Can't Be Serious. Brett, you've always got some good ones for us. Uh, Just the one today, although a a, a quick tribute to the great man, Super Mac, John McEnroe. He's in town. I thought, geez, could we get him on as a guest speaker just to to give us his catchphrase? But uh, no, I couldn't get close enough to him. Uh, But anyway, the the one that I saw this week that I thought was mildly amusing... uh, do we like a drink occasionally? Oh, just occasionally. Have we ever drunk to excess? No, no. never. No, okay. Well, look, I'll, I'll, I'll say I'm guilty of that. But I was, I was quite dumbfounded when I read that this uh, a, a gentleman in, in Vietnam drank to so much excess that he had to have his stomach pumped, which is not new for, for people having to do that. Um, but what they actually had to do was actually pump it with more booze. What? <laughs> no, it didn't make sense. So anyway, the explanation goes that um, the gentleman drank so much that he fell unconscious and he had a high level of methanol in his system. Oh, wow. And apparently methanol oxidizes to formaldehyde, which is so toxic that it can become deadly. Wow. So when he went to the hospital, the doctors realized that the only way to to help reduce his... um, potential for the formaldehyde to to come about was to transfuse three cans of beer (laughs) (laughs) which diluted the amount of methanol in his system so i didn't know this because alcohol comes in two variants methanol and ethanol and the liver prioritizes breaking down ethanol so if you give it more ethanol alcohol content it processes that and gives you time before it starts processing the methanol yep. into formaldehyde. Wow. So over the period of time, they ended up putting 15 cans of beer in him. What? Oh, my God. <laughs> You're joking. It. Wow. That's unreal. Uh, and there is a warning at the back of this. Please, please, please don't try this at home. <laughs> <laughs> well, I've got one uh, just before we round it out. So listen, if you're going to go and uh, steal someone's phone, it's probably a good idea not to steal it from a UFC fighter, right? Oh. <laughs> <laughs> well, a would-be... Good idea. <laughs> no one out watching. Yeah, yes. So uh, a would-be thief tried to rob UFC fighter Pollyanna Viana. So she is a, uh, a UFC... Oh, it's uh, a female. It's a female. Oh, yep. Good on her. You and Yep, and uh, basically um, the uh, 52 kilogram Brazilian UFC star was reportedly targeted by a robber outside of her uh, outside of her apartment uh, in Rio de Janeiro uh, while she was waiting for for an Uber driver to arrive. The junkie came up to the uh, to the uh, uh, MMA driver to Poliana and asked her to hand over her phone, and while making suggestions that he had a gun uh, that <laughs> she, that she had a gun on her. Uh, while he, sorry, while he had a gun, and uh, soon enough, um, he she uh, went to town on him uh, and <laughs> rearranged his face. Yeah. yeah. So uh. if if you're interested to see the results of it, uh, you can actually go onto the uh, onto uh, bad fucking idea <laughs> hashtag, <laughs> hashtag bad fucking idea, yeah. <laughs> and you can see the results uh. of of uh, Pollyanna's uh, fine work. <laughs> Uh, he didn't know how to pick his target market properly, did he? <laughs> oh, <laughs> oh, <no. laughs> 
Well, thanks for that today, guys. Um, we're going to have to wrap it up there. And thanks for our listeners for tuning in. And everyone have a fabulous long weekend. And, and can I just say, please, 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 can we just have no more Clive Palmer for a week? <laughs> oh, <laughs> I've seen texts from him. He's on the TV yes. all the time. He's everywhere. That's right. Clive Palmer free week. But yeah. um, we'll uh, speak to our listeners again next week. And as I said, have a fabulous long weekend and stay out of the heat. Thanks, Steph. See ya. You've been listening to this week's episode of The Investor Exchange. To access this episode's show notes, go to theinvestorexchange.com.au and follow us on Facebook at The Investor Exchange for updates on our latest episodes. This show is for entertainment and educational purposes only. Before making any investment decision, contact United Global Capital by emailing ugc.net.au for a personalised, no-cost, no-obligation financial strategy consultation. Or alternatively, email us at info at ugc.net.au.